Hello everyone and welcome to this edition to the Roar Lions Roar podcast here on Roar Lions Radio. Uh, per usual, I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo. Thank you very much for joining me. And my co-host, as always, Mr. Nick Pollock. Nick, um, not the happiest weekend that either of us have experienced, but other than that, how you doing? I'm good. I, I like how when you introduce our podcast, you're, like our former podcast with V Sporto is still so ingrained in your brain that you still say it like we're on the Roar Lions Radio Network. When I think yeah. that's really just our name. Yeah, at this like point. I'm. I'll be 100 percent honest. The discussions that we have in the Slack when it comes to this, I don't pay attention to those because I don't pay attention to anything that's serious in there. So uh, we'll figure out the name for our Temple Preview podcast, which uh, hopefully will come out. Uh, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, hopefully it comes out tomorrow on Thursday. If not, it'll be out on Friday. We have some uh, we have some good stuff up our sleeve for that one. But for now, we're going to talk about Penn State's. Uh, Unfortunate loss to Pittsburgh, 42-39, to in Heinz Field, home of the Pittsburgh Steelers, that they are so generous to let a college football team play there. People showed up for the game. It was weird, one person who didn't show up to the game because he is busy becoming a doctor down in Texas is Mr. Dan Vaselio, who is joining us on the podcast tonight. Dan, we haven't had, uh, had you on a podcast in a while. How you doing, my friend? It feels great to be back. Uh... <laughs> Good times, old times, all of them. And it's a good thing I wasn't there this weekend because I hate Pitt and I hate <laughs> we, what happened. Listen, and, we, we all hate Pitt and we all hate what happened. Yes. Uh, yeah. So for those of you who, uh, if you have somehow managed to avoid watching and f- learning anything about this game up until you are listening to this podcast – Penn State lost 42-39. to uh, The Nittany Lions came out pretty slow. Uh, I think, in a way, we were all expecting uh, something like that. But Pitt really came out, really punched Penn State in the mouth. Uh, Pitt's running attack. Mostly James Conner, but Quadre Olison chipped in. Darren Hall chipped in. Nathan Peterman had a moment or two. And Quadre Henderson, especially on uh, end of rounds, just carved up Penn State's offense. Uh, Penn State's defense. Uh, other side of the ball, Saquon Barkley did Saquon Barkley things. 20 rushes, 85 yards, a nice day for him. The impressive thing, he had four touchdowns on the ground and one in the air whenever Penn State needed to find the end zone. They knew to get the ball into his hands. Trace McSorley, uh, a bit of a grab bag of a day. We'll talk about him a little bit later in the podcast. But after a loss like this, I think that the thing that everyone really needs to do is take that step back not be so mad don't get me wrong you should be upset that Penn State lost to Pitt because Pitt is Penn State's rival but just take that step back and just look at the good things that happened in this game and Nick I think there were a number of good things that happened on Saturday afternoon what was the one really good thing that you thought stuck out the most Mm, the one thing Uh, I'm putting you on that spot mostly Mm. because I want to hear the same answer from Dan, I want to give that answer. Then I want to kind of open it up to a few other things. But the one thing that really made you the most optimistic about this game. I mean, it's probably wise to limit me to one because usually when you say what's your one favorite thing, <laughs> I say three or four. So um, I'd say the one thing that makes me most optimistic, I mean, it kind of has to be the way the offense played in the second half. Uh, obviously, the offense was not perfect the entire game, but the second half, there was clearly an uptick. Uh, they only scored 14 in the first half, and they put up uh, math, 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 25 in the second half. So there was a clear shift, and it's something I'm trying to write about for the site right now. I'm kind of running into writer's block a little bit. But just in terms of big plays in the second half, uh, the first half, they had just three plays that exceeded 10 yards. There was a 24-yard pass to Deshaun, 18-yard pass to Gasicki, and a 17-yard run by McSorley. But in the second half, there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine plays that exceeded 10 yards. And three of those were 11-yard runs by Barkley. And then three of those, four of those plays were 27 yards or more. So while there was, while it was definitely a combination of Pitt's defense tiring a little bit and kind of uh, playing back on their heels and not pressing forward as they, as much as they were, the offense clearly figured something out in that second half 
I mean, Joe Moore had made some pretty impressive halftime adjustments, I'd say. Um, oh, so yeah, I think I think that's the I think that's the key for me. Um, oh man, I almost started talking about a second thing. So yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll get right. to that in a second. I'll leave it there. Yeah. I mean. Giving Joe Moorhead, I think he deserves a ton of credit for the way that he called this game because I, I, Penn State's offense, it just looked like it got some kind of a shot in the arm, especially in the fourth quarter when the Ninhu Lions were able to march down the field and do seemingly whatever they wanted against a really solid Pittsburgh defense. Uh, and while we're going to talk about one thing that Trace McSorley did at the end of this podcast, he still threw for 332 yards, which is a really impressive performance against a solid secondary on the road, first ever road start, second start in his collegiate career without one of his top receivers in Saeed Blacknall. So an impressive afternoon from Mr. McSorley for the most part. Uh, Dan, I want to head over to you and ask you the same question. What is the one thing above everything else that stuck out in your mind from this game that gave you gave you optimism going forward? So since Nick already really talked about the offense. Um, That would have been mine, but he covered that pretty well. I'm just going to go with the fact that they were down 21 points in the second quarter, um, and in years past, that probably would have been it. Um, We're going into halftime, third quarter, and um, probably not coming back from that sort of deficit because of the offense that we've been accustomed to. But these guys, you know, you know, went into that second gear, third gear, fourth gear, um, lit something, something was lit under them, and they just never gave up. And not saying that teams in the past um, gave up, but there is just something um, that we haven't seen in a while in a Nittany Lions squad, and a team that allowed them to battle back and allowed them to get back in this game with a chance to win it, you know, with a minute and a half left in, uh, in the fourth quarter. Yeah, um, I want to pull this up, this quote, uh, from Mike Gusecki. Uh We put it on our Twitter. You've seen it on Twitter, I'm sure about it. Uh, but a quote that really stuck... Well, one thing that really stuck out to me after this game, this is my thing, was just the heart and the fire from this entire team. It very easily could have just packed up and said, listen, we're down by multiple scores on the road. This crowd is electric. Let's just try to make this one not embarrassing. I believe I believe it was Dave Jones who at halftime tweeted something to the extent of, if you're James Franklin, you would be happy with a two-touchdown loss. Well, Penn State lost by three. So if we're going by that, probably ecstatic. But after the game, we saw a bunch of Penn State players hop onto Twitter and just hop onto various forms of social media and talk about the pride they had in their teammates in this program in so many different things, the way they battled back, all that, and the guy who above everything else really made me go, you know what, this is a team that I'm going to enjoy cheering for is Mike Gusecki, who said, we have more heart in my three years than we've ever had. We've got a bunch of dudes that aren't going to give up, that aren't going to quit, and we're going to do whatever it takes to come back and win because we owe it to each other. We owe it to our fans, but more importantly, we put way too much time into it to just go down 28-7 and say, all right, we'll see you guys next week. No, that's not happening anymore. That's not Penn State. That's not who we are. So for us to fight back and turn that game, turn... Oh, wow. Yeah, messed up quote. Turn that huh. into... It, it, it's not my fault. We'll go over this later. Turn that into a game and have the ball moving down the field on the last drive, converting that fourth down. That's who Penn State is. That's who we're going to be in the future. And when I hear something like that, and I know it's not lip service because I just watched that be the case, I'm really, really happy to see to know that this team every weekend is going to be putting on the blue and white. They battled, they scratched, they clawed, they did all that, and unfortunately they fell into a little bit too big of a hole early when they had a chance late in the game to really completely turn the tide in their favor and then Pitt uh, busted off this really, really long uh, kickoff return. I believe it was something like 84 yards that kind of took the air out of everyone in. While I had that little glimmer of hope, I think I knew in the back of my head that, listen, it's not going to happen today once that happened. But for the most part, I was just so proud of watching how hard these dudes fought. Saquon Barkley was not going down unless there were multiple guys wrapping him up and pulling him to the ground. 
Deshaun Hamilton for, I mean, he's gotten a little bit of flack for the one drop at the end of the game, which is so completely off base because of everything that he has done for the program up until that moment. And in that game, eight receptions, 82 yards, really when things weren't going well early in the game, Penn State's best play was get the ball into Deshaun's hands. He kept fighting. Saquon kept fighting. DeAndre Tompkins, he kept fighting. Trace McSorley, he kept fighting. The dudes on the defense, they kept fighting. And that's a team that, sure, they lost by three in a high-scoring game, but I don't think anyone is going to want to play a team with that kind of scrap. And I hate saying this word because it reminds me of David Eckstein, but this kind of scrappiness, this kind of heart, this kind of fire. And when you consider that they grit. Uh, yeah. Yes, all those words to describe immobile white quarterbacks. And when you take that and you remember this team has so much natural talent, by the time the end of the season rolls around, I don't know who is going to want to play this Penn State team if they're able to put it together. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to touch on, another thing that made me pretty optimistic, and this is just, we'll kind of do quick hitters at this point. For me, I was really impressed by the way Penn State adjusted, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, ben Jones was, uh, I'll give him credit as the one who uh, brought this to my attention. Penn State in the first half, the drives allowed by the defense, 99 yards, 12 yards, 6 yards, 74 yards, 30 yards, 23 yards, 28 yards. I believe those last three were all short field on turnovers or something something kind of like that, or at least two of them were. That pit was able to turn into points. That 99-yard drive, you know, tore the hearts out of so many Penn Staters. At that moment, it seemed like it was going to be a long afternoon. And then in the second half, pits drives, minus 4, 75, 33, 2, 10, 5, and 5. Over Pitt's last four drives, they gained 22 total yards. So for how much Penn State struggled early on in the game, uh, mostly with defending Pitt's running game, they were really able to lock down and say, hey, you know what? This isn't going to happen anymore. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. But the way the defense especially adjusted was something that really gave me a lot of optimism as well. Uh, Dan, are there one or two more little things that you'd like to mention before uh, Nick rolls off, you know, 13 things that he was happy about? Uh, I'll talk about just one quick thing. Um, The emergence of John Reed, both on the defensive side of the ball and uh, as a punt returner. Um, It's something that we haven't had in a while. Uh, I think he had a 59 yarder to sort of put some of that juice back in the, the Penn State offense there. Um, then he played, I believe he played every snap at cornerback on so. Saturday. Yeah, um, if you uh, didn't check out, uh, I'm going to say this as much as frequently because Dan does the snap counts post so well. Check that out. Make sure. Uh, not me, Dan, the other Dan. We have two Dan. Yes, now. Dan Smith. Dan Smith. Dan Smith. It, it's the most informative thing written about Penn State football that isn't written uh, by Andrew uh, Callahan every week. So, uh, wait, maybe me just make sure. Callahan, yeah, not Callahan. Okay, good. But yeah, continue. Um, yeah, no, that's it. John Reed, um, he's going to be, he's a sophomore. He's going to be uh, an important guy for the next three years. Um, and we saw just a glimmer of that on Saturday, I think. And I'll yeah. cede my time to uh, to Nick <laughs> to rattle off for the next 20 minutes. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. John Reed is, he may be my favorite player on Penn State's defense uh, because of what you said. He's just a really good cornerback and then the shot in the arm that he provides in the return game is something that Penn State hasn't had and hasn't had in some time Nick uh if you want to just start listing some things go ahead I'm just sitting here waiting for you to talk about Blake Gillikin so I can join you in fawning over him it's funny you say that because the only <laughs> thing I'm going to talk about is special teams because I feel like everything else has been covered so before I get to Blakeykins we're going to talk about Tyler Davis for a minute because Tyler Davis deserves some props Granted, he has not yeah. been put in terribly difficult situations these last two years. I don't think he's even attempted a kick further than, what, like 44 yards, maybe? So it's something like that. I think as long as 43, yeah. Yeah, but regardless, the dude hasn't missed a field goal yet. I mean, on Saturday, he was one for one, kicked a 38-yarder through, knocked home all four of his extra points, which is become. I mean, extra points even... Even though the college isn't quite at the NFL model where they're kicking from like the 35, um, it's still they're still not 
gimmies anymore. Like teams are getting more and more athletic on the on those kick block teams, and guys are getting up higher and higher in the air. And so those really aren't gimmies. So what he's been able to do from Penn State's kicker spot deserves more recognition than he gets yeah. normally. So little shout out to Tyler Davis there. Um, Plus, and then and one oh, quick yeah. thing I want to mention: the I I don't have the numbers up, but I'm going to bet that. <laughs> kicking it the numbers for kicking at Heinz Field among NFL kickers and among college kickers that's one of the harder places to kick in college football so four for four on field goal uh extra points one for one on field goals I mean only one field goal kicker made a field goal and that was Penn State so we'll chalk that little moral victory in the car on the scorecard uh but yeah go ahead yeah for Pitt you could say that Chris blew it and missed a field goal. Thanks for listening to this edition of the podcast. I have to go kick the shit out of Nick. Blake Gillikin okay. uncorked five punts on Saturday for an average of 46.6 yards. Granted, one of those was, I believe, an exactly 50-yard kick uh, that went through the end zone, so had the benefit of the 12 yards, I believe it is, the end zone is. Um, but he also uncorked a 69-yard punt that... nice. Was- was yeah was a thing of pure pure beauty was that and, his first one mm, i think it was mm, maybe because the first one was the one that first like, one was the one that bounced all the way to the that one that bounced and that was the 99 was standing there like oh wow yeah this is awesome we yeah that was punter. that was probably it um but yeah so i was looking at the ncaa leaders in punting um he's dropped out of the top 10 in average but he's at number 12 right now which is still, I mean, pretty remarkable top 15 punter who's a freshman. And he also has, with that 69, nice, yard punt, he has the second furthest punt in the country this season so far. So I know that fans would prefer to see Penn State continually go for it on plays like fourth and three within a certain area of the field. But something you also have to keep in mind is that as this defense gets healthier and improves and gains more experience, they're not going to give up 99-yard drives too often. So if you have an opportunity to pin a team at the one with a guy that you know can do it, it's hard to pass that up. So while everyone will clamor for going forward on fourth down more in the coming weeks and the rest of the regular season, remember that we have a guy who can be what Cameron Johnston is for Ohio State. And that's just a, like a true, true weapon at punter. Yeah, and one thing that, you know, you're talking about special teams, just one thing worth touching on with Penn State special teams unit. That's kind of been one of the bigger Achilles heels under Franklin uh, during his tenure. And a lot of that has had to do with the sanctions, um, mostly because with the lack of depth, Penn State has most had a lot of walk-ons and a lot of guys who... Uh, just aren't really ready to play on special teams, and I'm sorry that I'm making an excuse, and I'm sure Vice Sports is going to write 10,000 words about it, but that'll that that's just the truth. I mean, Penn State has been in a really weird situation roster-wise, and it has hurt no place more than special teams. Last year, Penn State was 61st in special teams S&P+. Plus. This year, the Nittany Lions are 15th of the three S&P+. Plus, uh, rank, just in terms of where they are among the rankings, Penn State special teams is 15th, off uh, defense is 26th and offense is 43rd. So we are seeing Penn State make improvements in special teams. And when you think back to last year, with better punting, Penn State maybe wins one more game, two more games, or just better special teams in general. I think we all want to know see a little bit more consistency out of Joey Julius on kickoffs. Um, there are just times where he's able to boot it, times where it doesn't quite go all that far. We want to see a consistent kick returner. Uh, Miles Sanders pr- may have that job, the inside edge. Maybe Nick Scott does. We know that Franklin isn't a big fan of Saquon Barkley being back there. But Penn State has a punter, a really good punter. And Penn State has a punt returner who seems like he has the potential to be pretty, pretty good. So... Penn State is taking forward steps there. We really did see a lot of forward steps on uh, on Saturday, especially on the offensive side of the ball and in the kicking game. Uh, but I think that when we talk about the things that we saw that really made us happy about the game, a lot of people will take that as 
you know, they're being apologists. Um, they're not willing to look at reality. Uh, they're ignoring the bad. They're trying to rationalize a loss to Pitt being good, which I just want to get this out of the way. Losing to Pitt is not good. Losing to Pitt sucks because Pitt and Penn State are rivals, and losing to your rival is horrible. So... Uh, I think there are some things that we all wish we saw in this game, things that were a little bit better and things we especially want Penn State to improve on over the next uh, over the next however many weeks are left in the season. So, uh, Dan, we'll start with you. What is the one big thing that you were disappointed by in this game? Uh, and what do you think the fix is for whatever that thing is? Uh, so just the defensive effort has, was lacking, especially in the first half. You went over the numbers, and uh, as they went into the third and fourth quarter, things got a little bit better. But right from the beginning, um, had that 99-yard drive, so on and so forth. And it's not all um, the players in the field fault. I think at some point in the second quarter, we were down five defensive starters, somewhere, something like that. Um, Haley and Schwan and Bell and Cabinda and someone else I'm forgetting. Um, but there do, does need to be, um, I don't know if it's more coming out of the gate, um, the defense needs to be uh, much more ready once they get out there on the field. Um, and the adjustments were great, but I think they need to uh, get off to a better start. Um, and no better team to do that against Temple, um, as we'll see here in the coming oh, yeah. weeks. Yeah, and... I think a lot of that came from, and we'll debate this in a second, just the validity of uh, the two strategies that went into, you know, this game and how both teams are going to approach this game. Uh, but I think that between the injuries that Penn State suffered and the fact that this was Pitt's Super Bowl, uh, it's not a big surprise that Pitt came out a little bit more... Uh, and, and, you know, just really punched Penn State in the mouth, also because that's just what they do. Uh, they do in football. So we'll talk about the approaches in a second, but Nick, I want to get to you and just the thing that you were most upset about and you want to see improve uh, over the course of the season. Um, I I kind of agree with Dan uh, in a way. I mean, the tackling on defense definitely mm-hmm. uh, leaves a lot to be desired. But I guess for the sake of saying something different, I'll talk about the turnovers. Um, obviously, we need what we saw from Trace McSorley on Saturday was really, I mean, mostly great. I mean, he made the throws he needed to make. He made smart decisions for the most part. But two fumbles and the ill-timed interception at the end of the game, along with Saquon Barkley's fumble, which was unfortunate but it was a good play on defense um but we penn state is not going to win many games turning the ball over four times it's just not going to happen i mean barring yeah barring something like them turning the other team over five times to counter that but it's that's just not something that good teams can do and even with an offense that looks like it could be as prolific as penn state's might be able to be turnovers like that can kill you and in a game yeah. like this, in a game like this, I mean, Pitt had two scoring drives that were. Let's just pull it up real quick. First play, nine, first touchdown drive, ninety-nine yards. Second touchdown drive was twelve yards. Their third, fourth touchdown drive was thirty yards. They had they had another touchdown drive in the second half that was ten yards. So they. The Penn State gave them the short field way too many times, and when you do that against a team that can rush the ball the way that Pitt clearly can, it's going to hurt you because you don't have to air it out as much to get to the end zone. So if they can clean up those turnovers, this could still be a pretty special season for the Nittany Lions, especially one that is coming a year earlier than most think their breakout season really is going to come. But with those turnovers there, that can happen. Yeah, and that's that's kind of where I'm at. Mine's more just a general thing, and this is something that can really only come the more you play football. And that's just a general awareness of some things. Uh, like Trace McSorley, uh, we saw on the uh, we saw a few fumbles and a few sacks that were 
don't get me wrong, there were times where offensive linemen got beat, but I remember one specifically where Brendan Mayen got beat, but Mayen was still managing to push whoever the defensive end, I believe it was Ejuan Price, uh, past McSorley, and a little bit of a gap opened up between uh, between where Mayen was and where Ryan Bates was. And McSorley wanted to escape the pocket a little bit and just use off his mobility to extend the play. And instead of just tucking and heading out into that gap, he turned around. like It was bizarre. Instead of just taking off, he pivoted backwards and Price was just waiting there for him and he leveled him. Uh, the sacks again, I mean the fumbles again, uh, you can't put them all on McSorley, you can't put them all on May and they both had a hand in them. But those are both things they could do a little bit better and they can correct going forward. Uh, the interception that McSorley threw at the end of the game, I, I, I think we all agree that he has to get to a point where he sees something like that and he goes, okay, I know that they want me to go long, but there are two guys back there. We have one guy back there now, and a second guy is coming. Maybe, you know, letting it rip isn't the smartest move. And I'm not trying to, like, don't get me wrong, I'm, I wasn't happy with those. But I also understand he's a red, again, redshirt sophomore, second road start, all that. I second start, first road start. These are just some of the growing pains that you're going to experience, and... I don't think that, and I've seen some people who think this, I don't think that the way he ended the game is something that deserves a benching because the dude still threw for 332 yards, and the way he helped Penn State played a huge role in how he got back into this game. But I do want to see a little bit more of Tommy Stevens, mostly stemming from the fact that I just want to see what Penn State has in its backup quarterback. So uh, let's really quickly touch on this. I want to just make sure everyone knows we are not trying to brew up a quarterback controversy on the podcast. Uh, But Dan, I want to talk to you because I think you're kind of like me in that you want to see what Penn State has in Stevens. Not because you want him to take over from McSorley, but you're just interested to see what he has in the event that he has to play. Uh, is that accurate? Uh, in the uh, thought of not drumming up a quarterback controversy, yeah, we'll say that's accurate. Um, I will try to be as... I have been on Team Tommy Stevens from the beginning. Oh, as um, it, it, it sucks that he was not uh, deemed the starter. Um, from everything that came out of camp, he was... Um, you know, right there neck and neck with Trace by the end. And I think he might have a little more of a ceiling than Trace. Um, But you can't argue with 332 yards um, going up against a pretty good pit defense. Yeah. With that being said, however, the um, strip sacks, you know, in consecutive games is a bit concerning. The decision-making on that final interception, a little bit concerning. Even, especially during the Kent State game, and uh, I didn't pay as much attention during Pitt, um, but some of the decision-making that he had on the on some of those read options with Saquon in the backfield, um, I think he might have, especially during the Kent State game, kept it a few more times than he should have um, and when he should have given the ball to Barkley. Um, the decision-making there is uh, was supposed to be his biggest strength as a quarterback, and it's been, um, I don't want to say lacking, but not at full strength, I guess, um, since uh, in the first two games here this season. So with regards to this upcoming week, and I know you guys will talk about Temple later this week, um, I think there is no harm in seeing what Tommy Stevens can do. If he was really that that close in training camp, it means he has to have some sort of skill. If you throw him into a Division One football game, it's not going to blow up in your face too, too much. So Temple is not the Temple team that we saw um, beat the Nittany Lions for the first time since, what, 1941 last year. Um, they lost to Army by at least three touchdowns, I believe, in the first week of the season. Yeah, uh, they, lost by, they, they lost by 15, and I know this because Army was a 15-point underdog who beat Temple by 15 points. So. Okay. Um, so, yeah, this is not a, you know... a probably not going to be a great Temple team. You know, the fourth quarter, even, I don't know, if we're putting a schlacking on them by the end of the first half, give Tommy Stevens a half. Give him the fourth quarter to see what we have in him. 
um, in case you know the decision making, the the turnovers continue. That way, you're just not uh, you know second quarter into the Michigan game, uh, something goes wrong and you feel like you need to make a change, and you're bringing in Tommy Stevens completely cold with no game action. Um, so I'd like to see a little bit of Tommy Stevens this upcoming week, um, at least a quarter, if not a half. Yeah, Nick, where do you stand on the Stevens? Uh, McSorley thing because I know you are like Dan and I uh, in that coming into the season you wanted Stevens and I'm willing to bet that you're kind of off that train at this point but I want to hear what you think so this is a weird position for me because I, I mean I fell in love with Stevens as a player while he was a recruit and I really do think that he has a great chance to be a very good quarterback at Penn State if he gets the opportunity. And I was 100% on board with him being the starter heading into this season. And, I mean, I won't lie, I was a little disappointed when he wasn't named the starter. But that being said, I, I'm really on the fence of whether or not it's the right thing to give him a legitimate amount of playing time right now if for no other reason then it's just going to create a media storm for the coaching staff and they already have so many things to deal with in that regard that I really would prefer them not be further um, hindered by that and further distracted by that I just want them to stay focused on coaching the team but that's hard to do when you're getting half the time you're getting questions about Joe Paterno and half the time you're getting questions about which quarterback you're going to start and yeah. thousands of other questions are rolling through. So while I agree that if they're up on Temple, they should put in their second team offense like any team should, I mean, uh, a half, giving him a whole half might be a little much just because at that point you see someone play for an entire half, then a that a large faction of the fan base a larger faction than is already pulling for him um, which isn't a very vocal faction at this point but if you play him for a whole half and he I mean if he even just equals what McSorley does against Temple number one we don't really know we won't really know what that means for either of them as a player going forward because like we said Temple's not that good this year but if you give him a whole half then all of a sudden you I mean, you've set yourself, you've put yourself in a position where if you don't go to him the second that you see McSorley struggle in any game after that, then you're going to be criticized for not switching quarterbacks right away. So when at the beginning of the season when McSorley was chosen at the starter, Franklin had a quote that was something along the lines of, we're not going to be running a two-quarterback system. This is Trace's job. He earned it, and he's going to get to roll with it. For that reason, unless he really is struggling or if he comes out and has another three-interception performance that keeps them from winning a game, I really don't think we're going to see any sort of quarterback controversy on the field. Interesting. I mean, I'm basically in the camp of I want Stevens to get some run because I just want to see what happens when he gets out there. Um, I, yeah, and don't, don't yeah. get me wrong. I want that too. I mean, I think he's a great player, and by all accounts, he's, he's everything about him has improved, and his arm strength needed to improve, and it sounds like it did. And I would love to see him out there. I just don't know if now is the time for that. Yeah. Uh, oh no, I get what you mean by that. But I'm saying more from the perspective of, uh, I just want to see what he can do. I want to see what Penn State's offense looks like under Tommy Stevens. More out of curiosity than anything at this point, because. I, I mean, I think that what Dan was mentioning with uh, things like turnovers and decision-making all that, I think McSorley's decision-making is generally pretty solid. Uh, I want to see what his decision-making is like in a game where, you know, he's not getting bombarded the entire time. I, I think, I believe I saw a stat that said that he has been... He has faced more pressure than any other quarterback in the country, which is, I, I mean, that's good. Those are things you want. Those are ways that he becomes better as a football player. And he faces that stuff, and he improves. And now we get a chance to see against the Temple team that um, 
is taking a pretty solid step back from where it was last year. What he's able to do against an all, a defense that isn't going to end the year ranked in the top 50 or so of S&P Plus. So I think that the more he plays, the more whatever issues he has in decision-making. And I, I think he would admit there are some things he could do better. Those are going to improve, but I also just want to know what else Penn State has. That's why I want to see Andre Robinson get more snaps. That's why I want to see Miles Sanders get more snaps. That's why I want to see Juwan Johnson and uh, Irvin Charles and Brandon Polk might, and guys like that. Might not see Irvin for a while. What was that? Might not see Irvin for a while after that last well, play. Well, um, that's, that's a different subject. I'm still on this game, but uh, that's neither neither really here nor there right now. But yeah, he, it's it's just the curiosity in the entire thing. Uh, one other little thing that I want to uh, touch on is the approaches that both teams took to this game. Um, I think we're all... Um, I, I mean, Pitt's approach obviously worked from a scoreboard perspective. Um, because they won by three points. But, Dan, I want to bring you in, and I want to ask you this first. Were you a fan of how James Franklin handled the lead-up to this game, or did you want him to take more of the Narduzzi uh, attitude of, this is a huge game, this is a game that we have to go out there, and we have to be turned up to 11-4 in every single way? And while Frank, I just want to say the disclaimer, while Franklin may have done that behind the scenes, he didn't uh, he didn't put that out there for everyone outside of his team in the way Pat Narduzzi did. Did you want to see a little bit more of that out of Franklin? No, I think what he did was fine. Like Pat Narduzzi can do whatever he wants. Um, if he wants to close up camp and um, leave out the media, so be it. Like that's it's his team. He can do whatever he wants. If James Franklin wants to allow his players to talk, it's not. And it's not even they didn't say anything controversial during the week. The most controversial thing that was said was that Trace McSorley didn't see Pitt as a rival. Um, and I wrote about this last week. Well, yeah, he doesn't see him as a rival because the last time they played, he was five years old living in Virginia. And, and Penn, Pitt and Penn State played in a stadium that's not even standing anymore. Um, so is that controversial? Uh, fan bases might think so, but in the end, it's not. it's just a nothing statement. So I have no no qualms about how he ran uh, his team uh, with regards to um, talking to the media or doing whatever last week. All right, uh, Nick, kind of the same thing to you. Like, did you want to see uh, Penn State put on that uh, put on an angry face for the lead up to this one, or were you generally happy with all of this? No, I think the way they approached it was the way that you should okay. approach it. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I mean, yeah. Penn State Pitt is it's a rivalry. I I don't I think it's hard to argue that it's not. They have played. It's been a while, but they have played forever. They're the top two teams in Pennsylvania. It's it's. There's really not much you can say to against it being a rivalry. But just because it's a rivalry, unless it's one like Ohio State Michigan or Auburn Alabama, something that is. Every single year, without fail, no matter what, almost always has huge implications. I have no problem with treating it like it's just another game because, really, it is. It's week two. It's like it's this game is not making or breaking the season. You need to treat it like any other game because you don't want to. You don't want every, you don't want the team to get all hyped up for this game and then have an emotional letdown the week after, especially this year because you have Temple coming up this week. And if you're emotionally let down for that Temple game, who knows what's going to happen. So I'm, I have no problem with the way they approached it. Interesting. I, I, in a way, and I don't know if this is just because I like this kind of stuff, but part of me wanted to see Penn State be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more rah-rah about this game. Uh, and that may just be, you know, looking back on it, uh, watching how Penn State came out and just Pitt really dictated every aspect of the game early, at least in the early on. Once things settled, Penn State started playing a lot better, but early on, it seemed like Pitt was just riding a wave of emotion that very well could have came from the fact they were playing in their home field. Uh, but it's one of those things that you're going to look back on, kind of say what if, and just things like that. Uh, I think this will be the last thing that we talk about in this episode of the podcast, but I want to talk about the aftermath of this game. Uh, 
namely just it seems like people really don't like James Franklin right now. Uh, and I'm not necessarily saying in the Penn State community, because there are a lot... I know if you're wrong, there are a handful of Penn Staters, uh, well, a little bigger than a handful, who are just really not happy with James Franklin. And I think that it's mostly because Penn State lost to Pitt, and we wouldn't be hearing this stuff from Penn State people, the handful or so that are out there complaining. But it seems to me like most of the anger directed towards James Franklin are coming from people not associated with the program for a variety of reasons. Um, they don't like that they think that he has like politically gotten into himself into a situation where the only release for anyone is a firing. Um, just a really weird, weird thing. And Nick, I kind of just want to. I'll start with you. What? Why? Why do? people seem like they really hate James Franklin more than really anyone else when there isn't too much that he does differently from most college football coaches who want to pimp their program. I don't think I'd go so far to say as other media members hate him. Rather that I think their perception of the situation is a little bit different. Like I think people looking at this situation... I think they look at back-to-back sub-seven-win seasons and they just assume that Penn State fans themselves are unhappy, which, to be fair, a lot of them are. But I think they just kind of, they obviously a lot of them are not maybe, maybe not fully considering the scope of the sanctions. Maybe they're thinking about, oh, well, the bull ban's over. Oh, the, schol- the scholarship limit got lifted without really thinking about what the scholarship limit really means as far as rebuilding the roster, which is something we've talked about freaking thousand times by now. But oh, come on, it's not that many. There's, I think, I think that's more the perception that people are writing about it in that way because they assume that Penn State fans are fed up and that Penn State fans are not okay with it anymore. When in reality, I think people, I think Penn State fans accept more than maybe we give them credit for and for the when the national media gives them credit for what Franklin is dealing with at least a portion of the fan base does as far as the youth of the roster and things of that nature so that's kind of what i think fuels those articles it's more that outsiders assume that penn state fans are angry at franklin when in reality not all of them are yeah yeah, I think that's fair, but... And, and, again, it just seems to me like there's more animosity towards Franklin um, from most... From, from people that just... I, I wonder why they have animosity towards the dude. Like, why do they care about who's coaching Penn State if Penn State is as nationally irrelevant as it's made out to be by a lot of people. And Dan, I, I want to know your thoughts on this, because this is something that I find really interesting, and you're down in a different part of the country from Nick and I, so maybe you're able to speak from a different perspective on all this. So, yeah, no, especially the school that I'm at, you know, we have Kevin Sumlin here who came in in, what, 2012, um, tore yeah. through the SEC in A&M's first year in the SEC, um, and then has really sort of just fallen off um, with eight and four and seven and five seasons the last few years. And so they're, James Franklin and Kevin Sumlin within the last two years have have a similar record. They might actually have the same record. I'd, I'd have to go back and look because um, I really don't pay attention to A&M football. Um, but you don't see, you know, vice sports. I didn't read the article today. But you don't see Vice Sports saying Kevin Sumlin is not the coach for Texas A&M. You don't see, you know, Yahoo. Um, shout out to Coop, you're great. Um, you don't see Yahoo or um, any of these other places saying, you know, Kevin Sumlin is not the not the guy to lead uh, Texas A&M. They're saying he's on the hot seat, and they've said that the last two years, which is not um, untrue, and that has sort of the added effect of it being football in Texas, where football is everything. Um, but you don't. You just don't see it, and I don't get what the f- fixation on Penn State is. I don't know if you look back four years ago, and all these um, same columnists are saying, you know, Penn State football is you know done for the next ten years, 
And now just four years later, they say, you know, well, what the hell, guys? You're, you're supposed to be winning nine or ten games at this point with James Franklin. And like you guys have talked about in the past and has been beaten to death at this point, um, 2014, the scholarships, uh, scholarship limit gets lifted, and they're like, oh, you know, everything is magically, uh, you know, is magically rectified. You should be, you know, well on your way again. But when you look at this year's roster, those effects are still there today with them only suiting up, what, 12 seniors I think we have on the team? 12 scholarship yeah. seniors at least? Um, and I think ex- 51 players who were freshman eligible also. Right. So, I mean, those problems that were brought upon by the scholarship limits not just disappear when that scholarship limit uh, sanction was lifted two years ago. So, you know, I don't know why. I guess it's just the current state of I need a hot take. Um, let me spin the wheel. Oh, there's yeah. James Franklin. Let's co- come up with something about that. We know um, we'll get I, a bunch of angry Penn Staters tweeting at us to quote unquote prove our point. Like that. Right. Cl- click a, click on our article. But I mean, I mean, I'm not the biggest James Franklin fan as a head coach. Um, his in-game prowess is not the greatest. But he finally, I think, took the hint that he has to delegate. He's more of a CEO and not a head coach um, in the X's and O's type of style. Um, he seems to have let Joe Moorhead and Brent Pry do their own thing this year, um, which is what exactly what he needed to do. I'm the biggest like B.O.B. guy you'll ever find. I miss the guy to this day. Um, but there's not... There's no reason for you know Vice to have the hot take that they put out today. Apparently, like I said, I didn't read it, but from the reactions I saw on the Slack and on Twitter when I was able to get on there, um, it's it's frankly ridiculous. And I don't think, as Nick said, these writers uh, have a full scope of what's going on in the program. Yeah, yeah uh, and that's the thing. I think people are mixing up what they're saying Franklin making excuses with him stating facts like don't get me wrong I think that he probably should have been a little bit more tactful after the game when he talked about pit clapping and it messing with their cadence and stuff like that and bringing that you bring that to the referee's attention you don't mention in the press conference because then people are just going to pile on you and it's just something not worth the headache. But when people criticize him for saying something like, oh, I don't know, when Penn State lost to Maryland in 2014, the Nittany Lions had 43 scholarship players in that game. That's not an excuse. That's a fact. That's not enough to fill up a two deep. Like, that's completely ridiculous. And that's something that, yeah, you should be pissed off over that. If you lose, that's something that you should be able to scream from a mountaintop. We've heard him say that this is year one. And with it being year one, that means that this is really the year where Penn State is back to having a full complement of scholarship players, which is really good. But you also need to remember that those scholarship players, like we just mentioned, are freshmen and sophomores. There is a learning, uh, a learning element to them playing football that they have to get past. And it's something that takes a little bit of time. And I think that most Penn State fans are willing to give him that time. Uh, again, kind of like what Dan said, there are plenty of people, and I don't consider myself one of them, who aren't huge fans of him for whatever reason. Mostly because... A lot of the complaints that I had heading coming out of last season, to his credit, he seems like he's really tried to work on getting better at. Like, uh, as Dan said, the CEO kind of thing and delegating. I mean, Joe Moorhead called a great game. Brent Pry made a bunch of really great adjustments against Pitt. We're seeing that manifest itself and become something really, really good and something that's going to make Penn State better in the long run. So, I, th- I again, I just don't know what it is. I have this big, long, tinfoil hatty theory that involves the way he mixed up the old boys club in the SEC, but that's uh, for another episode of the podcast. Um, I just want to give a really quick shout out to our friends over at Crimson Quarry, Kyle Robbins, Ben Rayfield. Uh, I almost forgot My to God. do it this time. I almost the forgot to do it this good. time. 
The kick was good. Yes, it was. Uh, and Penn State is going to beat Indiana twice in basketball this year. That's neither here nor there. Uh, I almost forgot that one. I am pretty upset about it. And before we go, and I know this is like the third time that I've said that, but gun to your head, Nick, what is your score prediction for when Pitt comes to Happy Valley next year? Hmm. Um, I'll say 31-20 Penn State. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, Dan, what about you? Uh, 69 nothing. Yep. I was, <laughs> I was actually leaning more in Dan's direction because this Pitt team is a pretty uh, – it's an older team. Like, it's going to lose – Let's see. James Conner very well could go to the NFL. It's going to lose its quarterback. These things don't apply to rivalry games, though. Well, I rivalry mean... Rivalry games we, are always close. Listen, as we saw when... with 48-14. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, I mean, like, Pitt is just on defense. One, two, three, four. It's losing seven seniors. This Pitt team kind of reminds me of Temple last year, where they got Penn State at the perfect time both in terms of where Penn State was and where they are. And this Pitt team is going to be good. There's a good chance they end up winning the ACC Coastal. It's going to be either them or North Carolina in all likelihood. And they're going to have that over Penn State. And then they're going to walk into Happy Valley next year, breaking in a new quarterback and possibly a new... A, I mean, Quadriolis and had running back duties. At least two new offensive linemen, new skill position guys, a whole bunch of new guys on defense, and Penn State is going to kick the living hell out of them. And it's going to be awesome. I will say it's 48-14, even though I have no idea if that actually happens. All that I know is Saquon Barkley is... And I think Trace McSorley, if he is still the starter by that point, which I think he probably will be. I think the two of them are just going to rain fire on Pitt. And it's going to be beautiful. And I will be happily screaming. And I'm also going to scream pretty happily once we end... Because this is a good episode of the podcast, a really good discussion. Uh, Dan, thank you for putting off going for a run in the disgusting Texas heat to join us on this episode. It was great. Uh, I get to be fat for another day. And that you do. And not fit well into my very nicely made, or humbly made, Roar Lion Roar <laughs> t-shirt. Ah. Uh, which you should buy on Store Lion Store. Dan, that's my shtick, and we were just about to get to that. Uh, yeah, make sure you follow uh, Roar Lions Roar on Twitter, at RLR Blog. Like us on Facebook if you like the podcast and you want to listen to all of these. Uh, we hope to do some more quick hitters. Uh, I did one with uh, my buddy Martin Rickman from Up Rock Sports. I hope that we can get to doing more of those. So make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes and Google Play so you can be the first one to know when we're getting a new podcast up on the web. Read everything that you're going to find on the site. We got some really really great stuff. And again, I want to promote Dan uh, Smith's Snap Counts post uh, because it's just really good. And Dan puts in a lot of work on that. Uh, yeah. And buy t-shirts, buy all of our t-shirts because they are beautiful t-shirts. And I think we have a new order coming in soon. So do that. Purchase those. We have some cool things up our sleeves plan both in the clothing category we couldn't do one shirt that we wanted to do this year which we're not going to ruin it because we want to do it in the future but that one kills us uh but we got some good stuff for you You guys are going to enjoy it so yeah thank you very much for listening to this edition of roar lions radio did i get that right nick yep Hell yeah, I knew I was going to eventually. Uh, for Nick Pollock, as you just heard, for Dan Vasselio, who was kind enough to join us on this episode, I am Bill DeFilippo. Thank you very much, and we'll catch you all next time.